Near the southern Arizona border, a little north of Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument, is the town of Huai. Huai, Arizona. The story goes like this. For years, the locals had called the place just Y, the single letter Y, because the town was at the Y crossroads of routes 85 and 86. When in 1950, the United States decided to put a post office there, the postal administrative rule says you can't designate a post office by a single letter of the alphabet. The folks of Y kept calm in the face of bureaucracy. They just added a W and an H to the front of the Y, and life went on as usual in Y, Arizona. A friend of mine driving through Y looked around and named it the existential capital of the world. <laughs> the sign in front of the laundromat said, Why Wash? <laughs> there was the Y Market. There may have been a Y Drive-In. My friend said he drove away from Y feeling probed. Why Arizona? I've been asked that. Um, why do I go there for a few days each spring to smell the mesquite and see the Palo Verde and put a hand on the leathery saguaro, as I've done every year for 20 years? I'm a native Midwesterner. Why the desert? Edward Abbey, writer and wilderness advocate, was asked this too. He said, why go to the desert, the sun roaring at you all day long, the dreary wind that seldom stops, the barren hills that always go up, which is bad, or down, which is worse. I look out past a canyon rim, and I see a few scrubby clumps of prickly pear, a few acres of nothing where only a lizard could graze, surrounded by a few more square miles of nothing. I study the scene with care, looking for a ruin, an abandoned mine, a hidden treasure, a mother of all mother loads. But there's nothing out there, nothing at all, nothing but the desert, nothing but the world. End of quote. Why Arizona? Why the desert? I lived out there for a while. Between seminary training and my first call to ministry, the desert became a kind of spiritual home base for me. Most of us have such a place, the boundary waters for some. Some the ocean calls, some it's a city place, a place and a time when something came into focus. Albert Camus said, a person's life purpose is nothing more than to rediscover through the detours of art or love or passionate work those one or two images in the presence of which his or her heart first opened. The desert is a place with a lot of horizon. It's a good place to take the long view. When people ask me why Arizona, I should offer them that article by Belden Lane, the one Stephen read from, the story of Saint-Exupéry in the desert. Lane goes on to say more about the gritty spirituality of those desert fathers and mothers, the Abbas and Amas, who in the early Christian centuries, in a time of urban and church decadence, went to live in a rough terrain to seek the true face of God and their own true faces. Lane says these desert pilgrims were wisened souls who had weathered sun and heat, who didn't give a damn for things they used to find so terribly important, who were not easily co-opted. There was a wildness in their eyes, hardly fit for polite company. They nonetheless loved with a fierceness 
echoing the land through which they had passed. Theirs was a harsh and dreadful love as pure as it was lean. The desert had taught them well. What happened in the desert, says Belden Lane, what happened to both Saint-Exupéry and those desert fathers and mothers was they lost their romantic notions. They were stripped of their illusions about how it really is. They were disillusioned. We understand something about this, and not only because we're now in a time of recession and values inventory, for religious liberals like you and me, shedding illusions is a habit of our heritage. It's been a key theme. Historically, we've taken stands against that which we see to be romantic or magical or superstitious in matters of faith. We've insisted that our religion makes sense, that it line up with what we judge to be real, not illusory, in this world. Life has certainly shown me the error of many of my illusions. I was a child of the 60s. I've learned that how it was supposed to go is not how it went. I might have needed more disillusioning than some. I grew up in the soybean flatlands of central Illinois. I craved the films and fairy tales that took me to places with peaks and valleys of feeling and imagination. I was disappointed as a kid when Dorothy had to leave Oz and return to a dusty barnyard. (laughs) I had hoped she would stay somewhere over the rainbow. I've come a long way since then. I'm now happy to be with the chickens and the chores. But when it comes to illusions, I still understand how it is to hold a belief or a hope that spiritual growth or faith development is a journey of some kind of accumulation or expansion. Uh, as As we journey, we'll have more and more of something. We'll feel better and better. We'll feel spiritualer and spiritualer. It's a strange and uneasy thing to learn that spiritual growth may not mean having more and more of a good thing, but it might mean losing more and more of something. It's not that we haven't been warned. I once heard Parker Palmer talk about the Jesus of the gospel stories as the great disillusioner, the great disillusioner, capital G, capital D the one whose mission it was to disabuse his followers of their notions about how it is in this life. A voice from the crowd calls to Jesus, I'll follow you. Jesus says, easy now, don't be rash. Foxes have their holes, birds have their nests, but I have no place to lay my head. They address him, good master. Jesus says, only God is good. In Jerusalem, they say, look at all these great buildings. Jesus says, every stone will be thrown down. They think the kingdom that is the reign of God is something that will come in a loud way with fanfare and spectacle. He says, no, it won't come that way. It's already here, and it's as ordinary and unspectacular as yeast in bread dough. Jesus, the great disillusioner, brings a message like the line in that Greg Brown song, the world ain't what you think it is, it's just what it is. Jesus wasn't the only great disillusioner. The Buddha was a great disillusioner, too. Illusion begets misery, was Buddha's message, and that includes illusions about wise leaders. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill her. 
Hinduism is the great disillusioner. In Hinduism, maya, illusion, is that veil that covers the real, the veil that must be pierced or swept aside. We could add to the list of great disillusioners if our illusion is that our bodies are time or disease immune. Aging or illness is the great disillusioner. If our illusion is that we can be in true partnership with someone and not be humbled and changed, then real relationship is the great disillusioner. If our illusion is that participation in a vital community is consistently comfortable, then life in real community is the great disillusioner. For Saint-Exupéry and the Desert Fathers and Mothers, the dry desert was the great disillusioner, but it wouldn't have to be a dry place. Back in my desert days, for the people along the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, the flood of 93 was the great disillusioner. In July of that year, I said yes to my first call, a two-year parish ministry in Portland, Oregon. I went back to my home state, Illinois, to get books and belongings and head to the northwest. Central Illinois in late July was all flood stories. The media showed us details. A dazed farmer stands by a seven-mile-wide river that covers his bean fields. A small-town high school band director sobs over the 80 musical instruments that were sucked into brown whirlpools. Workers piling sandbags near St. Louis watch as the Mississippi pulls a Burger King away from its moorings near Gateway Arch. The restaurant takes a helicopter pad and a boat with it downriver till it smashes into the I-55 bridge and breaks up. In Elwood, Kansas, the National Guard stops parents from taking young children to the area where they'll see their contorted swing sets and their mud-covered beds turned upside down, and the paper says the children have lost their illusions of a safe and predictable world. These were stories of people set down in a harsh and unrelenting landscape that took everything they thought they had. The flood stories were desert stories. Some of the folks in the sludgy desert sank into despair. Some got angry. Some who had food hoarded it. Some who had food shared it. Some rose up in a spirit of grace and humor. A Chicago Tribune editorial said, What kind of wild God is this? Back in Illinois, my plan was to pack up my things and go with my things all the way to Portland on Amtrak. My mother, a seasoned traveler, would go with me. It would be the great American adventure. It would be like the glossy photos in the Amtrak brochure. From the window of our private sleepers, we'd look out at inspiring vistas. We'd eat when hungry and sleep when tired and arrive in Portland refreshed. What actually happened was we rode all the way to Oregon sitting up in a crowded coach in an overbooked train that was rerouted north due to the great flood. The train was so off schedule that the inspiring visits went by at night in the dark. In our coach, two of three toilets weren't working, and we were air-conditioned to 57 degrees with no recourse. After 19 or 20 hours, when Mom and I had played all the five-card draw we could handle, (laughs) I reached for the only reading material I had brought, a book called Timeless Visions, Healing Voices, Conversations with Men and Women of Spirit. I opened to a section in which the editor was interviewing philosopher and mystic Bernadette Roberts, 
he asked Bernadette how what he asked what can what keeps us from maturing spiritually what keeps us from maturing spiritually she was reluctant to generalize finally she said if i had to put my finger on the primary obstacle i would say that it is that we have wrong views of the journey to try to avoid suffering and to want to have it go our way runs contrary to the whole movement of the journey paradoxical as it may seem the spiritual journey has to rub ourself small as self has to rub ourself the wrong way and in the end even rub it out end of quote she was saying we get it backwards she was saying that real spiritual growth depends on life going against our romantic selfish grain simply life is the great disillusioner and that's how the system works and if that's so then the desert is not so much about a place out there as it's about a task in here and the desert can be anywhere Belden Lane in his article about the old desert pilgrims concludes this way he says the truth of the desert fathers and mothers has to be transferable able also to be lived out in the canyons of our great cities all of us know desert pilgrims who have never been to egypt never wandered in new mexico but they have known the parched and cracked land of an aids hospice the steep cliffs beyond the waiting room of radiation oncology still others have dwelt in the harsh desert of addiction and mental illness or known the sustained pain of divorce, unemployment, or physical disability. The possibilities of desert experience in contemporary life are more varied than we might have thought. The desert as metaphor is that uncharted terrain beyond the edge of the seemingly secure world in which we take confidence. This is a world of affluence and order we cannot imagine ever ending yet it does and at the point where the world begins to crack where brokenness and disorientation suddenly overtake us there we step into the wide silent plains of a desert we had never known to exist we cross its sands unwelcome stripped of influence and reputation the desert caring nothing for the worries and warped sense of self-importance dragged along behind us there in the desert everything is lost absolutely everything this awareness at first is terrifying but if we stay long enough resisting the blind panic that gnaws at our minds we we discover beyond all hope and all caring that in the end we are saved by the things that ignore us the desert's silent immensity is able to absorb every grief and anxiety all the brokenness we are able to pour into it in being emptied of everything oddly enough we know ourselves to be loved for the very first time saint-exupéry after his near death in the desert wrote Never shall I forget that lying buried to the chin in sand strangled slowly to death by thirst my heart was infinitely warm beneath the stars
End of quote. Perhaps the last illusion is our illusion that at the end of disillusionment we'll find there's nothing at all. Spiritual growth must be about getting to something that's on the far side of disillusionment. I may be a Midwesterner, but I'm familiar enough with the desert to know that it's a place where surprises happen. It's a place where, against a stark backdrop, startling beauty appears, a violet sunset, a jeweled hummingbird, a silver moon above a gold mesa. It's where the spiny hedgehog cactus, after years of inching its way up from the sand, after years of what looks like barely holding on, brings forth full-blown overnight one satiny magenta blossom. The spiritual growth I'm getting at, the kind that happens on the far side of disillusionment, is something like the miracle of that blossom. It's an improbable blaze of color. It's a hard-earned flowering that defies its own history. All things excellent, said Edward Abbey, are as difficult as they are rare. Spiritually, then, what might the cactus flower, that magenta blossom, stand for? I thought about this as I sat on the Amtrak double-decker with Bernadette Roberts' words before me. Maybe, I thought, maybe the gorgeous bloom is our realization of our connectedness. When the walls of illusion come down, so do the walls that separate us one from the other. And that Amtrak ride was not all bleak. My coachmates were a resourceful group. The two middle-aged sisters who were on their way to a family reunion in Montana shared their raisins and wheat thins around. The family of hikers loaned out their extra blankets. Several of us took turns holding the newborn in the seat behind me. The young man with the old guitar gave a hand to the elderly nun whose eyesight was failing, helping her in and out of the train at stops. We might have been more comfortable in our private sleeper with our illusion of separateness, but we would have missed something important. Or maybe I thought the flower is an unforeseen gift of freedom. Maybe the magenta blossom is the radical freedom that comes when there's nothing left to lose, when we get to the point where we ask, why wash, why shop? And we keep trekking through sand or or laying down sandbags till an answer comes. Accept your death and become dangerous, says the, the old native shaman in Lynn Andrews' novel, Medicine Woman. Accept the death of your illusions and become free. Or maybe I thought maybe the gorgeous, fiery cactus bloom stands for a fierce kind of caring like that of the desert fathers and mothers, a caring that's tenacious and bold and doesn't need coddling. Most of all, I want the flower to be that. The miraculous bloom is the heart of the desert pilgrim, that's any one of us who's been wounded and opened, broken and blessed, and who's learned or who is learning to live ordinary life with extraordinary love. Would you join me in a closing meditation? 
There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. Praise and thanks to you, Spirit of Life. Brood over us with tenderness, burn in us like flame, blow through us like a cleansing wind, well up in us like a fountain, so we may be your power and your voice in this world. Amen.